Well, you, you may have noticed coming in this morning, there's a, there's a, a, um, a whole display over here that has been put together. Um, and uh, this, this actually today would be officially our church's 160th anniversary. 160 years ago, on the first Saturday in August, um, a band of pioneers formed, uh, gathered together to form officially a church that would meet in a, in a log cabin schoolhouse and assembly building, a church building, that they had for that purpose. And then that next day, that first Sunday in August of 1863, they gathered together for their first worship service. That was just a little bit up the road. They didn't move down to this corner until 1894, but there's a whole history display that shows you some of that. Um, there's also, uh, I, I invite you to go out and go over and look after the service is over, that um, there's an old bench here as well. That, uh, that, that's not from the original log cabin. That, that bench is from the first church on this corner that was built in 1894. So maybe at the end of the service, some of you would like to go and sit in that bench once again. And remember those early years. <laughs> Encourage you to do that. But we are grateful, aren't we, for the for the uh, heritage, the the shoulders, grand shoulders upon which we stand and continue this ministry, and by God's grace, seek to continue it for the generations that will come after us. I look forward to the 200th anniversary. I don't know if I'll see it, but um, if, the Lord, if the Lord delays in His coming, that we want to continue that foundation that's been laid, that generations after us will also have the same blessing that we have um, appreciated. There's a, a anniversary picnic. We're going to push the actual celebration to August 20th this year. That's the date that the deacons have organized. And there's uh, things that you can participate in, things that you can bring, ways that you can help. There's a, there's a sign-up table out in the foyer, uh, ways you can help in preparing for the picnic, setting things up, uh, some of the cleaning up or the aftermath. Um, please take part in that as well. Like uh, various ministries, the, that which, which we do as a church is that which you do as a church. And that includes celebrating together as well. So I hope you all take a, a part in that. Um, one of the other things coming up that I'm looking forward to is, is there's a, a backpacking trip into the Goat Rocks Wilderness. And as the name suggests, there you will see goats and rocks and wilderness. And this is going to be in August 17th, I think, 18th and 19th. And uh, so I checked. I said, because it's pretty high altitude and it's, it's just off one of the most scenic parts and one of the highest points in Washington State on the Pacific Crest Trail. So it's a great place, a lovely, beautiful place. If you want to talk about enjoying the creation that God has made, this is one of those places to do that. Not only in seeing the, the beautiful meadows and the, the, the mountain lake and the, the peaks, the ruggedness, but also to look up the sky at night and see how the heavens declare the glory of God. And I looked, and on August 17th, when we go up there that first night, it's, it's, I was wondering, what's the, what, 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 what's the moon going to be doing? What's the lunar cycle? And so I went and looked, and you said, don't worry, your pastor is not dabbling off into a, a astrology here. I was curious how bright is the moon going to be, and I was delighted to see that the moon is going to be a new moon. It's only going to be about 2% of its full brightness. 
That means we're not going to have this beautifully moonlit night there in the wilderness, which can be its own beauty, but it means there's not going to be much of any moon in the sky. And there are no street lamps. This is wilderness. There's no light pollution. And so it's like you could almost reach and touch the stars, and they will be bright and lit up like you hardly see them. I'm looking forward to that. The heavens declare. Because what that tells me, doesn't it say, wow, look at the sky. That's beautiful. Look what God has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's, now, now, if we were up there in Go Rock's wilderness, and there, right, right there next to the lake, uh, right there kind of at the peak of the trail, the trail goes up, swings around, then comes back down again, and there's this beautiful lake that's only glacier melt off the surrounding slopes. That's all the water, that, that and the rain, that fills this lake. There's no stream into it, only a stream flowing out of it. And uh, uh, this lake will, might even still have a few little chunks of ice in it. I'm not sure. But what, let's say right on the shores of that lake, there was this very nice cabin. Now, what would we think when we saw next to the lake this very nice cabin? We would say, that's a very nice cabin. No, my first thought would be, who built that? How did they build that? How did they build that here? The cabin evidences somebody who made that. And so does that night sky. And so does this beauty that we see in the Northwest and especially enjoy this kind of year. And that's the testimony of Psalm 19. We read about it earlier. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, when we approach this psalm, typically we think about there's two main moves in the song. And that's why we, we sang, Behold our God, and we sang ancient words. That there is a, the testimony of creation what we refer to as general revelation. Everybody sees the creation. It's open generally to everybody. And then there is special revelation. There is God's Word, God's Scripture, where God has specifically, specially revealed Himself to people. And the, 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 the psalm moves between verse 6 and 7 from how creation reveals God to how God has revealed Himself in His Word, in the law, in His commandments, in His truth, in His precepts. And so as I was, as we were opening together Psalm 19 earlier in the week in our Monday study, I asked the guys, before we read, I asked the guys, watch for main movements. How does the psalm shift its focus as it moves along? As we, as, then as we read, and we talked about that afterwards, it, it emerged from the group that actually there's not just those two, there's three movements and I think that's really key to getting what God has for us here. There's three movements in this song. Verses 1 to 6 speak of creation as God's general revelation. Evidence is God to all, and it assumes some accountability that we have to God. But it doesn't really tell us who that God is and what exactly he requires of us. But there's the testimony. Like that cabin by Goat Lake, there is the testimony who made this. Who is this God who made all of this? Creation speaks to a creator. 
Then verse 7 to 11, the focus moves to Scripture, God's Word, specifically from the view of the psalmist writing early. And I think these psalms date to David's earlier years, even before he's been before he he's been anointed as king but he has not become experientially king he's still on the run from Saul and so in that sense when 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 David is writing about scripture about God's word he's writing in terms of the law God's commandments God's precepts which are truth he's writing about that record of Moses as also the historical record of God's faithfulness in his dealings with his people and in, the, in God's law, there's a, there's a revelation of who God is and how we are accountable to him, what that accountability requires. God's, God's scripture is good, it is right. God's law has no fault in it. It reveals God and it shows his standards, but the law shows that there's a fault with us. There's something wrong with us. And then we move to the last movement, verses 12 to 14, where again the focus shifts. It, it shifts from creation to God's word to us. Who can discern his errors? What is our response to God's revelation in creation and then in his word? What is our response? And I call this a move from general revelation to special, specific revelation to what I'm going to call this morning transformational revelation because the revelation of God to us becomes transforming in our response to it by faith. So hold that thought as we work through the psalm. We know of God in his creation. We are accountable to God through special revelation, the scriptures, and we are transformed by God in our response in faith to his word. Psalm 19. Let's begin. I'm going to read again verses 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And I think this is a, this is a testimony not only in the nighttime, but also in the daytime. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's some of that poetic structure. We go from nighttime stars to daytime the sky to day pours speech, night reveals knowledge. But they're not talking. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words. There are no words whose voice is not heard. But verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. There is a testimony without words that begs for words to be spoken about it. There's a wonderful thing right there. Just the, the, the creation begs for the God who created it to be explained and to be revealed, and God does reveal himself, and he reveals himself through Moses as Creator, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes forward from there. He moves from general revelation into the specifics. You know, in your life, God has changed you and you live differently. And there's, there is a testimony that is seen and heard, yet without words. And yet, doesn't that testimony without words, doesn't that change life beg to be spoken about? Those around you that see you different, that see you transformed by God's truth, they need you to tell them how that has happened, how God has done that. 
Their words go out through all the earth, their words to the end of the earth. And in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man run its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end. There's nothing hidden from its heat. We see in creation God's awesome power. See God's creation and be amazed. Be in awe and wonder. Amazed is a way overused term today. And yet it fits here. Be amazed, be awestruck at the creation that God has made. We see God's awesome power in the size and span. Just this last week, again in the news, the, the, uh, the, the telescope could see farther. They identified galaxies they've never seen before where God has placed them. God's awesome power in the size and span of creation, both by day and even more by night, God is way bigger than we could imagine him to be. There's a value in science and in telescopes. The value of science is to see God's fingerprints on the work of his hands. The sky above proclaims his handiwork, the work of his hands. And there's value in science According to, I gave you a whole list of quotes that are on the back of your notes, so don't try to jot any of this down. But there's a couple I wanted to share. First of all, by Louis Pasteur, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the creation. The study of the creation should point us to the creator. Galileo, the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics to the unfortunate dismay of many a high school student. I like this one by Albert Einstein. I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon. In this spectrum of this or that element, I want to know his thoughts. The rest are mere details. Albert Einstein. Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, I am a scientist and a believer, and I find no conflict between those worldviews. And neither, apparently, do 40% of the working scientists who claim to be believers in a personal God. So, don't be afraid of science. It doesn't always mean, I mean, it used to be science was held up as, well, science says, and science is irrefutable. Don't question science. Well, guess what? Over the last several years, we've learned to Question science. Maybe just a little bit. A little healthy skepticism can be a helpful thing. But when, when we consider science as the honest and open study of that which the Creator has created, we can gain wonderful insights into the greatness of our God. We see God's faithfulness even in the predictable order in the solar system and in the universe. In our own solar system, as the sun rises and sets, those lunar cycles that we can predict, and I know what the moon is going to be doing a few weeks from now. As Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 35, this speaks to God's faithfulness as a creator. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. 
If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The order, the predictability in creation is a witness to God's faithfulness to Israel, to God's faithfulness to us. Jeremiah 33, 25, Thus says the Lord, if I, have, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of David, of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy upon them. You can count on it. I am faithful. You see his faithfulness through his creation. And all humanity has some witness to that. Romans 1 tells us that, that, that all humanity has witnessed to, in the creation, God's greatness and our general accountability to him. Romans 1, verse 18. And again, you have these references in the notes. Don't worry. I hope you'll go back and look at some of them. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, it's shown, it's revelation from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, what truth? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What is it about God that he's shown to everybody? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart were darkened. They looked for another answer. They looked for another explanation. They turned from God whose existence they knew and looked in futility for another answer instead. Another answer to which we wouldn't be accountable. They looked in the Lego bucket and they said, there's a house in there. Who built that house? No, wait, I don't want to know. And they closed the lid and they walked away. Creation reveals the creator generally, but not personally. It tells us we have a creator. We are accountable to somebody. We didn't just happen by some coincidence. But it does not tell us what that creator requires of us. Creation also shows us something is wrong. In the movement of the seasons, from spring to summer to harvest to winter, a time of death, and it reminds us of the mortality that we see not only in human life, but in all living creations. Something is wrong with creation. And yet, the witness of creation doesn't tell us what to do about it. How will God restore the creation? Or how will he restore us? That takes a more specific revelation from God. Aware that he is there, what does he ask of us? What does he expect of us? What are God's requirements? And there we hear in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Verse 11, moreover by them is your servant warned. We read, we see God's creation and we're amazed. We read God's word and we're convicted. There we come face to face with what do you require of me? What does the one who made me expect? The Lord, Yahweh, has revealed himself specifically as the Lord, as the master and redeemer through his word. And in David's, in David's perspective, that word is the Old Testament law. So let's talk about law. Let's talk about the commandments, the precepts, the truth, even the historical truth that is part of the books of Moses. The law that which David in the psalm would be referring to. You know, humanity agrees, generally, in most cases, humanity agrees that God's ways as described in the Ten Commandments are good. Actually, that would be a, a good way to live. By and large, we'll have our exceptions. We like to choose them ourselves, please. But for exam example, the idea of to worship God rightly now, all through, all through human history, people have argued and, and warred over, over who is the true God and how should he be worshipped. But the idea that, that the God should be worshipped rightly, that's, that's not foreign. God should be worshipped the way that God expects. We agree with that. Worship should be with sincerity rather than hypocrisy. A, the idea of a regular day of rest included in a relationship with God, that humanity needs rest. And that actually, that rest is linked with God himself who worked and rested. It's been said that, that a day of rest is the gift of the Jewish people to the rest of the world. You're welcome. But actually, it's not the gift of the Jewish people, is it? A day of rest, the idea of Sabbath, is a gift of God to humanity. God knows that you need rest. And God, know, God intended for us to have relational rest with Him even before the fall and toil becoming all the more futile. A day of rest is thought of as a good thing. How about honoring father and mother? Typically, a cross-culture is popular with parents, not so much with toddlers and teens, but you know, that's generally valued in society. The idea of not murdering, not committing adultery, um, not lying, not stealing or coveting, the basis of, of individual property rights, the foundation of personal liberty, opportunity, even prosperity, founded in, I can own things that are mine that shouldn't be just taken from me by somebody else. And they, they value the recognition of individual property rights. Whether you get yours by taking from somebody else, once it's yours, like any toddler, what's yours is now mine, and what's mine is mine. And two-year-olds understand this. Generally, humanity understands that. It's not that, it's not that we, we think those Ten Commandments are just weird. We don't like what they say about us. How does the law apply to us? Now, you're Christians. Let me assume that for a minute. 
that would not be a, a, an assumption I want to finish the service with. But let's just for now, assuming that the majority of people here are believers in Jesus Christ, that it's through faith in Christ that I am in right relationship with God. Not by what I do, but by what Jesus did for me. I'm in right relationship with God. And, and I've been freed from the, the judgment of God's law against me as a Christian. So I'm freed from the law. Well, well what, what role does the law then play to me now? What, what does Psalm 19 and its extolling of, of God's law, what does that have to say to me, to you? Well, there's a way for us to rightly use the law. And remember, Paul, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, All Scripture, including the Old Testament, including God's law, all Scripture is profitable for what we understand about God, for doctrine and for correction, and for, re- for, 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 for rebuking and for instruction in how to live rightly. That all Scripture is profitable that these things that are written before are written for our instruction. Okay, so the Old Testament and the law have something to say to us. How do we rightly use it? I want to give you four principles. That's three, four. Four principles, okay? First of all, the testimony of the Lord is sure. The law of God is a reliable witness of God's moral character and attributes. The law shows us what God is like. When you read the Old Testament, when you read the law, a wonderful study in the Ten Commandments, what do these say about what God is like? The Word of, the, the word of God reveals God. They, he is the unique and only God. Have no other God beside Him. He, is, he, he desires a Sabbath relational rest with His people. He is the source of life. He's the giver of life. He says, do not murder because he gives life instead as the creator. He gives rather than steals. He is faithful and he always speaks truth. He is not a false witness. He doesn't covet, but he generously shares his glory with us. The law shows us what God is like. But by them is your servant warned. The law also shows me what I am like. The law reveals, the law confronts my sin. Romans 3, verse 20 says, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. Nobody's going to be declared righteous before God on the basis of works of the law. I did what the law required because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law points out my sin. It shows me my error. Over and over again. Run, run, and do, the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. A better thing the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. The law shows me my sin. It it, it shows something about myself. What kind of person am I that I have to be told not to steal? That I have to be told to be faithful, to not commit adultery. That I have to be told not to lie. Otherwise, I would lie when it's convenient and advantageous to me. There are things that the law describes that these are the things that I would do. In and of myself. The law shows me something about humanity. It shows me something about my own sin. But God's law revives the soul. Another way to translate that, it it restores or preserves life. 
the law revives the soul by pointing us toward Jesus. Remember when Jesus walked with those two on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24? There, from beginning in Moses and the prophets, from all the scriptures, Old Testament, he, he showed them the things concerning himself. The law, the law, which is the written revelation of God, the written expression of God, the written word, would certainly point us to the living word, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We would expect that the law would point us toward Jesus. Think about Passover, Christ our Passover sacrificed for us. Think about the, the day of atonement when all the guilt and sin of all the people was laid upon one sacrifice who took their sins, who bore their sin away from them never to be seen again. The law points us to Jesus. The law, Galatians chapter 3 describes, is our, is our tutor, our child conductor. That person that had the responsibility to take the master of the estates, to take their children to school and back, to conduct them safely, to point them the way and to lead them to their, their, their goal, going to school. The law is our child conductor. The law points us to Jesus. Finally, the law shows us a new way to live. The law shows us what life looks like different from our depravity. The um, being filled by the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Against these, there is no law. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, to love your neighbor as yourself, these are the fulfillment of the law. All the commandments are fulfilled there. The law makes the simple wise. It shows us a new way to live. The law shows us what God is like. Let me give you an example of this. The law says thou shalt not steal. The law says thou shalt not steal because God is not a stealer. God is a giver. And so the, the law says do not steal because I am, I am a fallen human. I would steal. I, 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 I would take that which is not mine and claim it for myself. The law tells me, it shows me my sin. The law points me toward Jesus as the one who, who committed no sin, who never stole but rather bore my guilt on himself. And then the law points to me a new way to live, not stealing. In fact, that, that commandment carries over into the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says, let the one who stole... Steal no more, but rather a new way to live. Let him labor, working with his hands, so that he might have something to give to those in need. So that we could be like God, who gives generously, freely to those in need, rather than taking from them for himself. So the law reveals to us what God is like, in ways that do convict us, in ways that show us our need for a Savior, in ways that show us our need for forgiveness. Even the sacrifices repeated over and over and over again remind us that there needs to be a fuller forgiveness of sin. Where will it come from? The, 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 we respond to God's truth by faith and are transformed. Look at verse 12. Uh, rather, yeah, 12 and 13 especially. Who can discern his errors? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. These hidden faults, these errors, this, this refers to that sin that may, I didn't even realize that was part of the law. I, I, I violated it because of a provision I didn't even know about. But ignorance of the law is no excuse. You didn't see the speed limit sign. That doesn't mean you're not guilty of speeding. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, and yet I didn't intentionally, knowing clearly this is what God said, and choose, I reject that. I'm going to decide what's good and evil for me. I'm going to join Adam. I'm going to do it my way. No, this is error. This is sometimes the, the, the error was even referred to those sins that one could rationalize themselves into. You can talk yourself, you can spin the circumstance in such a way that it's really probably not a sin in this case because of, and actually I might be helping, and you can give permission to yourself. You can fool yourself. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. No man can know it. We will fool ourselves. And how can we, the psalmist said, who can discern his errors? Lord, declare me innocent from hidden faults that I'm not even aware of. It seems, it seems, the law is kind of burdensome. I've been told that there's over 600 commandments, as the rabbis count them up, there's 600 plus commandments that we are liable. Do this, don't do that. That seems pretty burdensome, doesn't it? That's a lot of rules to try to keep straight. But... As residents of the United States, in the state of Washington, and the revived Washington Code, and the administrative code, and living within Clark County, maybe you're even within the city limits of Battleground or Vancouver, you are subject to far more rules and regulations and requirements than 600. They stack up and up and up, and we don't even have an idea of what they all are until you find out you break one of them. So God is actually very, very gracious in his rules as compared to the rules that we live under trying to keep a sinful society straight. And you know, look at where it's gotten us. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Well, there's the thing. I don't even know the fullness of my sin. How can I be declared innocent? That declared innocent, that's the idea of justification. As, as it was said of Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's not because Abraham was righteous in all that he did. Remember, remember his line, meet my sister Sarah? He was ready to hand his own wife over to somebody else in order to try to preserve his own life. No, Abraham is not fully righteous in all that he does, but Abraham believed God and his faith in God was counted to him as righteous. He was declared righteous before God. And Abraham becomes, in Romans chapter 4, the model for us of one who is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Declare me innocent. By faith in Jesus Christ, you have been declared innocent. You know your guilt. But do you know your innocence? Do you know the fullness of your forgiveness before God? That you can rest in His full acceptance because Jesus paid it all. 
Declare me innocent and then keep me from presumptuous sin. This is that high-handed sin. This is that premeditated, I know what God said, but I want to do it my way anyway. I reject God's will and I choose my will. I'm under grace after all, right? God will have to forgive it. I can do what I want. Oh, God, preserve me from that. And that's, that, 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 that's Paul's language in Romans 6. What then? Are, uh, shall we continue in sin because we're not under law but under grace? He says, God forbid. Don't you realize? Don't you remember your own baptism? Don't you remember how it was declared that you were buried with Christ in his death so that you were raised up with Jesus' resurrection so that you could also live in new life? You could live a new way. You don't have to live after that old taskmaster any longer. You are free to live with God in his ways. Why would you ever go back? Keep me from presumptuous sin. There's something of the Lord's Prayer there. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Keep me from presumptuous sin, a high-handed self-will rejection of your ways. Verse 13b is like it. Let sin not have dominion over me. Romans 6, verse 14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. You know what, you know what sin does? Sin uses God's law to condemn people. And God's law is good. So sin, according to Romans 7, sin takes something good, God's law, and uses that to condemn. That's how perverse and twisted sin is. And you still experience that in life. You still experience the temptation that comes where the enemy says, come on, come on, come on, it'll be okay. Come on, come on. No, no, no. Come on, come on, come on. Come on, come on, come on. And then he gets you hooked. And then you, you, you step into that thing. And then the same enemy, what does he do? How could you? Why, look at you. Look what you've done. You're terrible. You're horrible. You say you believe, but look. And he would use that to separate you from the God who loves you, from the Savior who has redeemed you. But the grace of God in Jesus, who paid for all your sin, takes the teeth out of the tiger. It removes the club by which the enemy would beat you with because now the answer is, yes, I sin. Yes, I'm guilty. Yes, look what I've done. In fact, there's more, but Jesus paid for all of it. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Savior. That's your answer to guilt every time. Do not let the enemy's condemnation push you away from God, afraid to approach him. Come boldly before the throne of grace so that you will find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Don't let him intimidate you and scare you away. Let not sin have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent. You see the transformation that's, that's hinted at in the psalm? Declare me innocent that is not experiential. It's a declaration by God. That is justification. Then I shall be blameless and innocent. I will walk in your ways. I will walk in your innocent. I will be being made, being conformed, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus my Savior a little more like him day by day than I shall be. Responding in faith to God's word is where being declared innocent becomes my experience in being. It's the new life 
that I have with God in Christ by His Spirit. That happens as I respond to God's Word out of awareness of the Creator who I am accountable to. I look to the heavens and I'm amazed. I look to God's Word and I'm convinced and convicted. And yet there I respond, not with a renewed determination to try to do better, but there I respond with faith in God's Savior, who will declare me innocent, and by His grace, by His mercy, will keep me from presumptuous sin, will, uh, so that sin will not have dominion over me, so that I shall be blameless. I will experience some of that innocence from the temptations that used to grab me and control me. There is victory in the Christian life. There is new life in these mortal bodies by the Spirit who indwells in us, according to Romans chapter 8. That comes out of responding to God's truth and being transformed. Do you have something from God's Word that you need to respond to? You know this. God has showed you this. And you need to step into it. You just say, God, I, I believe you concerning this. And I need to change. I need to do. I need to step. I need to, I need to give whatever it is. I need to commit. There's something God has shown you out of his word. Something I love about our D group model is we, we, we hear from God's word. The whole, the whole discipleship group model, a center part of it, a big part of it is learning to hear from God individually as I read his word day by day. So that I highlight a particular place in God's word where he speaks to me. I, I explain, I seek to understand what does this mean that's in its context so that then I can make a right application. How does this Truth then, as I rightly understand it, apply to real life, and then how will I respond? The last part of that HEAR acronym is highlight, explain, apply, and then how do I respond to it? If you haven't had that experience yet, walking with others in the discipleship group, let me be a, let this be a shameless plug for that because it, it'll change the way you approach devotional time. It'll change the way you approach God's Word and hear from God there that you might respond and experience His transformation. Verse by verse, choice by choice, are you in God's Word so that you can respond? You see, God's greatest work is not those rocky, rugged peaks in the Goat Rocks wilderness. God's greatest work is not even the glorious stars and galaxies that a dark night sky puts on full display. No, God's greatest work is His redeeming and transforming of your life more and more into the likeness of His Son, Jesus. So that the word of my mouth, the meditations, the hidden thoughts in my own heart are increasingly in harmony with God's Word and God's heart. 
That's a transformation I can't pull off. But that is God's greatest work. And he invites us into with him, with others. This table that we come to this morning is a celebration of that. It's a celebration of what God has done for us in Jesus in restoring us to himself. The fulfillment of the law that pointed to Christ as our Passover sacrificed for us. That invites us now, being, having been given new life, to live in that new life. So I want to invite those that are serving to come forward. And I'll point out as well that as we will be serving these elements, the, the elements here are gluten-free. That's because the table is open to all those who believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior. But if for health reasons, just still needing to be careful, you um, prefer those individually sealed um, communion elements that we have, have, have used in the past, there's still a tray of those available in the back corner behind the sound booth. So feel free to make, make use of those as well. Just get up during this next song and go get those elements if you need them. And uh, we will pass the elements, and then we'll all, and after everybody's been served, we'll partake of one, of first the bread and then the cup together. And as I mentioned, this table is not merely for those who are members of this church. This table is for those who are members of Jesus' church. Those who have said, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, your son who you sent to be our Savior, my Savior, in that in his death for me, he took my guilt, my sin, my shame. He bore that away in his death in my place so that I could be restored into right relationship with you. If your claim to relationship with God is through Jesus, who died for you and rose again, then we invite you to join in celebrating that with us at this table.